Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Nothing like a little dumb and dumber to get you started in the morning. Amen? Amen. Many of you are seriously questioning my judgment here this morning. Why would I even show something like that, right? I love the, the, the scene and how it unfolds, and later on you can tell he's got a gun and he's thinking about pulling it out, thinking about using those guys. Radio? Who needs a radio? Right, Mock? Yeah. Ing? Yeah. What a classical piece of work, huh? Dumb and dumber. Nothing quite gets you going. When you think about Lloyd Christmas and when you think about Harry... That's one thing apart, right? You put them together, you get a whole other thing. What words possibly come to mind to describe these guys? I mean, what can you possibly say? I was thinking about that movie clip this week. I was watching it. I was working on my PowerPoint to get ready for this. And the word that just kept coming up to mind was, really? Like, really? Like, I don't even know how I'd react if I were in the presence of those guys. But there's something about them that just seems to defy all mystery and reason and logic. I think they perfectly named and titled that movie, right? But I say you're questioning my judgment this morning because if we open up with a clip like that, some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, how on earth, preacher boy, are you going to use that to make a point about Jesus, right? How are you going to use that to launch a service or a sermon? Well, I'll tell you. I'll show you how with a question. And as soon as I ask you this question, I think it's going to make a lot of sense. How many times in Jesus' life, especially when he was with his disciples, did Jesus, Jesus end up feeling like that guy sitting between Lloyd and Harry, right? More than once, for sure, I got to think, and our Bible story for today, Luke chapter 9, is no exception. And we're just going to dive right in this morning. But before we do, I just want to say, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, I want to say again, a special welcome to you. We have, I, I don't know, I walked in this morning and there was this group of people and they all have these dark blue shirts on. Is there somebody, Urban Plunge? We've got a group here that's on mission to our city. We've got a, a youth group from Minnesota here this morning. So let's give God praise. They are going to think strange things about Des Moines. You know, we went to this church and they were playing Dumb and Dumber as part of the sermon. It was awesome, right? But we're so glad that you're here. And we believe it when we say it. We believe it's no accident that you're here. Because we believe that God's on the move and he's got some powerful things to say to us this morning. We're in week number three of our current sermon series. It's called Just What We Need. Walking through the Gospel of Luke. Looking at some of these key stories. These key moments in Jesus' life and in his teaching that end up being a gift to humanity. You see, Jesus is one of these guys who doesn't just give us what we want all the time, but he gives us what we need. In fact, he gives us just what we need. And so we're looking through this, uh, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, kind of looking at these different areas and these moments where we seem to get stuck in our life, where we seem maybe to plateau in our faith. And there are these things, if we don't attend to them, if we don't spend time on them, then those, that, that could happen to us as well. Let me just give you a few examples of where we've already been in this sermon series. Two weeks ago, John was up here and he talked about this idea that Jesus being the calmer of storms. Storms in our life, not thunderstorms rolling through Iowa, which I wish he would do that sometimes. Right? But the storms in our life, the storms in our heart, even the wind and waves began to obey Jesus. It was a powerful scene for his disciples to be in the boat with him in the storm. Last week, we covered this mountaintop experience. It's called the transfiguration, right? Jesus, his appearance literally changes. and becomes this brilliant white. And as if that doesn't knock the disciples' socks off, then the voice of God 
Think about this for a second. The very voice of God shows up and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I'm thinking if I'm one of the disciples and I'm there in this moment, I have had my mind blown by this experience, right? And this is just the first two weeks that we've been looking at Luke. Storms and mountaintops. You just got to be wondering what we're going to get to today, right? Right? Today? Well, today we're talking about an argument. An argument. They've experienced God, and now the very next day after the transfiguration, the disciples are back to their usual shenanigans. An argument. Let's just make sure we've got the story straight. They climbed a mountain with Jesus. God showed up. The very voice of God boomed. Moses and Elijah appeared. And then they come down the mountain. Jesus, you know, just an average day, just casts out a few demons, heals a few people. And in the midst of all of this, the disciples get into an argument. It's unbelievable to me that these disciples experience this. And what makes it worse? I mean, the only thing worse than getting in an argument with your fellow disciples with Jesus standing right next to you is to have a horrible topic that you're arguing about, right? The topic, well, was it a good one today? Well, there's no sense in me telling you. If you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to grab them, open it up to Luke chapter 9, because I spent all week working on this message, you guys, and I still can't believe this is what they have to say about the disciples in here, right? If you've got your Bible, it's Luke chapter 9. We just heard it read, but I think it's worth following along. Again, Luke 9, verse 46. I mean, you think, gosh, if they're going to get into an argument in front of Jesus, it's got to be worth an argument worth having, right? Verse 46. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. Seriously? Seriously. Every once in a while, we pull out the message paraphrase. It's by Eugene Peterson. He kind of took the whole Bible and translated it and went through and kind of reworded it into language that's helpful for everyday people like you and I. And I love what he says. It even puts it into better context, right? He says, they started arguing over which one of them would be the most famous. What is it with these guys? What are they thinking? I mean, they're kind of making Lloyd and Harry look like nothing, right? They are in the presence of of God. And if you've ever been there in your life where you've had this moment with God where you just felt like you were this big because God was so massive, it just doesn't make any sense. They just don't seem to get it. And more importantly, as I look at this and wonder what's going on here, I just, I, this other question came to mind. I mean, what do these guys need to see, right? What needs to happen in their life for them to actually get the focus off of themselves, right? What needs to happen to these disciples to get over themselves and put their attention not on them, but on the thing that actually matters? I mean, they have the Son of God in front of them. It's a good question, though. What does need to happen? And I think it's the question that they should be asking, but instead, what question are they asking, right? Who's number one? That's what they're talking about this morning, and it's no surprise, right? I mean, we're all human. We all make mistakes, and the disciples are no different. It's part of our story. I mean, I say all of us make mistakes. Maybe you're more mature than I am. Maybe you walked in here and you're batting a thousand this morning. You haven't had a single disagreement with anybody or got impatient waiting in line for the coffee or the donut holes, right? But these disciples, oh, they, they are struggling. 
and they're struggling with this nasty disease, this condition that you and I and every one of us as human beings has. In fact, it's been called the root of all sin, right? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the universal human experience called pride. Pride. Something that all of us tend to struggle with. And it was interesting as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about pride. It began to occur to me that I don't think about pride very often. I think I experience it all the time, but I don't know that I intentionally think about it this, this very often in my life. And so it's been an interesting journey this week to begin to see all the different ways that pride begins to show up. But if we take one look at Mark chapter 9, I mean, there are just a few verses in today's passage. Pride is already in the house. And we're only to the very first verse. There's no getting around it. It's everywhere in this passage, right? And don't worry, it comes up in the second half of this passage as well as they're beginning to talk and they're tattling on another person, right, who's using Jesus' name and doing some really cool stuff. But hey, he's not part of our group, right? These disciples, I mean, I'm sure that conversation with Jesus had to have just gone great, don't you think, right? They want to be the ones in the driver's seat, they want to be the ones on the inside, and it's all because of their pride. And as I've been thinking about it this week, like I said, it, God began to bring to, me mind after my, to my mind example after example of the ways that pride has popped up in my life. But one of the questions that really got me thinking this week is, well, how do you define it? Right? And so I did what probably any of us are doing, went to the dictionary, and I, I looked up pride, and it talked about this idea of having an opinion of yourself that's higher then maybe is justified or is warranted. And that's, that's pretty good. But as I was thinking about pride this week, the definition that seemed most helpful to me actually came from a pastor who defined it as this. He simply said, being prideful is being preoccupied with yourself. Being self-focused, being selfish, preoccupied with yourself. That is, the focus is on me. Not God, right? Not this vertical relationship we have, not this horizontal relationship we had, just me. And if you need an easy way to remember this, take a look at this word up here, right, that I've got written on the chart. What's the middle letter? I. Exactly. Pride is something that we struggle with. It seems to be all around us. It's this idea, this understanding that we deserve to be the priority, Right? This thing that allows us to believe that here is the world, here is us, right? And it goes like this. You ever had a moment in your life where you realized that was the case? If not, you should double the person next to you and they will have plenty of examples, I'm sure. Right? But we have these ideas, we have these thoughts that under, enter our head. We live our life as this idea that we deserve it all. Right? That we should have it our way. That we need to be the ones in control. That the world is depending on us. That we're the best that's ever been. And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with, and with this. And there are consequences. All you have to do is look around at the culture. Look at the world. Look at the country. Look at the society that we live in. I was on Facebook this week, and a friend of mine posted a video. It's a super short video. It's just comparing two what arguably be Two of the best, the greatest basketball players to ever play the game. Is that me? Sorry, technical difficulties. Um, I should have shaved this morning is what I should have done. <laughs> and I'm watching this clip, and I just couldn't believe 
I mean, it just jumped off me, uh, jumped off the screen at me, the pride that is in the words that one of these gentlemen is, is sharing with his audience. As you watch this, take a look and see if the pride jumps out at you. Let's, let's take a look. Here campaigning for the best player in the world or in the history. I'm not saying that, you know, because everybody plays differently in, in different eras. Now I feel confident because I'm the best player in the world. That's simple. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but I kind of feel like LeBron James has a high opinion of himself, right? And when you look at the accomplishments, isn't that interesting to see the juxtaposition? I know that's a huge word, but the, when you put those two people side by side, it's astounding. Here's my question, though, right? We're looking at the pride that we have. We're looking at the pride that we see around us. What did you feel in your heart as you watch somebody else struggle with pride? Isn't there something in you that rises up and says, who does this guy really think he is? Well, he's LeBron James, I suppose. He probably has some bragging rights there, right? But this, this pride, it's everywhere. It's in our culture. It's in you. As you walk in here this morning, it's in me. I know that I'm going to burst your bubble this morning, but here's the thing. Even pastors struggle with pride. And as I've been looking at this, I've been thinking about these examples in my student ministry days, back when I was a youth leader out at our West Des Moines campus. That's where I was before I came to work here at this wonderful downtown campus. Uh, I started my job. One of the first things they told me was, you've inherited this ski trip. You get to take these 30 kids to the mountains of Colorado. And I said, yippee, right? I was totally excited. I love the mountains. I love getting outside. But we got on this experience, and there's something I began to realize. The kids that showed up for this weren't necessarily the kids that were there for the Jesus thing right? But they were there for the mountain thing. And so I was thinking, well, let's try and figure out a way to work Jesus in. And I really wanted to kind of balance the experience out and see what would happen. And so as, as we did, we added a mission component. So it was kind of a mission trip and it was a ski trip. So what did we name it? Mishensky. Isn't that brilliant? See what I did there, right? And truth be told, I wanted the logo to be like the silhouette of an old Russian guy like smoking a cigarette. But that got vetoed at the church communications department. So... Right, but I was going on this ski trip, and I was unbelievably excited about it, right? And, and, and part of why, the way that I wanted to make this a deeper experience for the kids, because we can go out and we can do all these great things. We can serve. We can be out there. We can be the church to people. But sometimes we've got to stop, and we've got to take the time to process, right? We've got to reflect. We've got to think about what it is God's doing in our midst, and we've got to look at this. And so at the end of every night, we'd have time for small group. Urban Plunge Kids, you can probably relate to this. Right? We talk about what did God do this day? What did we learn? What's he teaching us? We wanted to get to know each other, so we'd share stories, do things like that. And a couple of the high school boys that were in this group with me, they began their part of the sharing that night. They were talking about this group that they'd be in, that they'd, they've been in before they'd gone on the trip, and they were really loving, they were enjoying, and they, they, they described it as a character study. They were working on their character, and I just had to do a double take for a second. I'm like, wait a minute, you guys are in high school, and you're trying to figure out how to be gentlemen and how to grow up and allow God to shape your character rather than the world around you. And, and I could kind of tell as they were talking about this character study that they were in, like, a lot of the kids were kind of impressed. And if, looking back, I mean, I was impressed. I'm like, that's really cool. I should probably go to something like that sometime, right? And we enjoyed it until an hour later. I was having a great trip until an hour later. I'm trying to get 
these 30 high school kids to sleep. And we're all sleeping in the big sanctuary of this church. There are 30 kids, like three of my adult leaders in the room with us. And almost everybody is behaving themselves except a couple kids. And who was it? The kids that had just been talking about this character study. They were getting on my nerves, and I was sitting there, and I was thinking, man, I should say something. But for some reason, there was just this hesitance in me, and I just couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to say. And so I decided to hang back. I'm in my sleeping bag, and I'm just thinking, maybe if I ignore it, they'll just go to bed. But then finally, one of my female leaders speaks up and says, hey, you guys, will you pipe down? We're trying to get some sleep over here. And what did these guys who were in the character study, what did these guys do? Right? They laughed. In front of the whole group, we're all in the room. It's like the disciples in front of Jesus, right? They disrespected one of my female leaders, and I was kind of sitting there, and I was holding back, and I was thinking about this, and finally, it clicked in my mind. And so I unzip my sleeping bag, I stand up, and the room is totally dark, and I walk over here, and I walk over these guys, and I'm just this towering figure over them, and I just say, you know what? For a bunch of guys in a character study, you sure aren't acting like it. Boom. Then I just walked away. And if I'm honest with myself, it was one of the best moments of my life. <laughs> you couldn't have heard a pin. I mean, you could have heard anything in that room. I mean, I am not, if you know me, you know I am not one of those guys that says the right thing in the right moment and just can do the mic drop and walk away. That never happens to me. Like, this was a golden opportunity, and I was cherishing it, so I'm sitting here, and I have just disciplined these guys as efficiently as I could. I had to say, like, ten words. Boom. Heart transformation, right? They were convicted. I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit. And so I'm making my way back to my sleeping bag over here, and as I'm doing so, the pride begins to sizzle, right? And I'm thinking, man, I'm pretty good at this. Man, did you see that? I just shut those kids down. Not that an adult would ever say that, right? <laughs> I've got this thing. You know what? You know what? I, this church is so lucky to have me. I am, I am sending up and I am buying my own press as I'm walking across this room. And the focus is on me. I was on cloud nine. I thought I was the coolest thing since sliced bread. So much so, in fact, as I'm walking back across this room, I forget the fact that I have put my prescription eyeglasses on the floor right next to my sleeping bag. Here's how this story ends. I drop a bomb on these guys. I walk across the room, and I hear crunch. <laughs> Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before the fall. And I'm living proof that that's absolutely true. Oh, it bugged me. I mean, it was a $300 mistake. The pride felt awesome for like the 10 seconds, though. I will tell you that. But it was, it was a big mistake. And that's the thing about pride. Not only do you and I battle it from time to time, but there are consequences, right? The consequences that turn us into jerks, for example. It has the potential to do that. And all of us wrestle with this, right? But here's the thing. Pride can cause pain. It can cause agony. I mean, do we need to talk about the story of the Titanic this morning? Right? What gets us into those kinds of situations? Pride steals from us. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of the things that God is doing all around us. Again, remember what I said about pride. It's about having you in the middle. It's about being self-focused. If we're looking inward all the time, 
where are we not looking at all the amazing things that God is doing around us? And if we're not careful, we can miss the forest for the trees. God needs to do something with our pride. And this whole concept, this idea of us being broken, of being focused on ourselves, it's nothing new. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of our story, it's where we begin. So if you got your Bibles this morning, I want you to flip to Genesis uh, chapter 3, but I'm going to start in chapter 1. If you, if you haven't ever taken the time to go through Genesis, highly recommend it. I mean, it's not just a story, it's our story. It's where we begin. And if you haven't read it, just a little bit of a recap. Chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, the light and the sun and the sea and all of those things, the land, God creates it. But he's not done. He works on each of these things, and after each day, he creates a different part, and he says it's good. But the crowning achievement, the crowning jewel is us, humanity, made in his image. And so he gets that done. Chapter 2, it says we are very, very good. But notice, after we've been created, Adam and Eve have been created and united together. Chapter 2, verse 25, notice the world as it currently stands. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And at this, important, at this point, it's important to notice, right? The world doesn't have shame. There's no brokenness. Right? They're not struggling with pride. Everything they have, everything they've ever wanted, everything they'll ever need has been given to them. They don't need anything else. All their needs have been met. That is until chapter 3 comes along and things begin to go sideways. Satan shows up as a serpent, the shrewdest, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, of all the wild animals the Lord God has made. And one day he comes and he asks the woman, begins to plant these seeds of doubt. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we can eat the fruit, she says. It's just the one in the middle that we can't. God said we shouldn't eat it or we'll die. Again, Satan's kind of building his argument here. He's playing another seed of doubt. He says, you won't die, right? The serpent replied, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like him. You're going to know both good and evil. He's put this new idea out in front of them. And by that time, the damage is already done. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. But here's the kicker. Here's where the pride begins to enter the picture, these very next few words. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her. And so what did she do? She took the fruit and she ate it. And the result is, at this very moment, their eyes were open, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. Think about, for a second, and I don't know if we do this very often, as you look at this Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, think about the, the, the terrain that is traversed in these three chapters, right? The peace, the joy, the tranquility, the freedom that both Adam and Eve get to experience it vanishes in an instant. And rather than being captivated by the God who's all around them, all they can do now is look to themselves. Their concern is about themselves. Their attention is on themselves. And ever since, we've been stuck in this pride trap, unable to climb out. And so all they can do is sow fig leaves to cover themselves. I want to ask you this morning, I've been talking a lot about pride. 
How's it going for you? As you walk in here this morning, what do you think about pride? Are you a person who's teachable? Are you honest? Are you the kind of person who can be vulnerable with the people around you? Or do you tend to hide things, to belittle them, to push them off, say, oh, it's not a big deal? Can you actually be who you are around the people that are around you? Right? What motivates you? What fills your tank? All of these things speak to our relationship with pride. And I want to give you a chance to answer this question this morning, not just on your own, in your heads, but every once in a while we do this thing called community time. And I just, I, we think that worship and community are far too important of disciplines to leave and not have connected with a person authentically on a Sunday morning. So here's what I want you to do. If you're up for the challenge, uh, I want you to find a person that you don't know very well, or you can find the person sitting next to you. You can talk to anybody you want. And we're just going to give you a minute to do this, so kind of move quick through it. But what's your name? What brought you here this morning? And what's an example of what pride has looked in your life? Because I think we really need to connect with this idea that pride isn't just something that other people have, right? But it's something that all of us struggle with, all right? On your marks, get set, go. All right, let's pull it back together. If you talk the whole time, that means you've got issues with pride and you were in the right place, okay? All right, we've got to do a show of hands this morning. How many of us... How many of us here had a hard time with coming up with an example of where pride has gotten us into trouble? Did anybody have a hard time with that? God bless you guys. How many of us, we had to choose between way too many options? We're well aware of our pride. Good. Half of you are just lying right now because you, you didn't raise your hand at all. So, all right. Here's the thing we know about pride. It's everywhere. It's everywhere and it has the power to destroy us. Isn't it interesting then that as Jesus sees his disciples and they have this argument, he's got a choice that he's got to make. I love verse 47. It says that Jesus knew their thoughts, right? They're having this argument. Maybe they're within earshot. Maybe they're not. But Jesus is right there, right? He knows exactly what they're thinking. You ever think about that? It's just a little disturbing that Jesus can literally hear your mind. He can hear your heart. But in this moment, he has a decision he has to make. He's got these disciples. He's got this this revolution, he's got this project that he's been working on to put the world back together to redeem humanity. And things are getting interesting here, and as he's facing this challenge, there's a sense of urgency that's beginning to build. Do I say something? Do I shut it down? Do I let it go? Right? I mean, we look at something like arguing about who's the greatest, and we might say, well, it's no big deal. Right? But to Jesus, it's everything. Because when you look at the book of Luke, it's divided into these three big chunks, right? You've got the very beginning, uh, chapters 1 through 9, which is kind of what we've been covering so far, right? Jesus setting the stage uh, and beginning to really help people understand who he is and what he's all about, right? But then there's this middle chunk. Verse, uh, chapter 9, just a few verses after our Bible reading for today, we turn the page into the second chunk. Chapter 9, verse 51, it says that as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Well, what's Jerusalem, right? It's the very center of this whole thing that he's come to turn upside down. It's the center of the world where these values and this understanding of the kingdom isn't congruent with the way that God originally put the world together. What Jesus is focused on here is he's having this conversation as he's weighing in his mind, should I talk to these disciples or should I just let it go? is the fact that things are about to get real. 
right? It's go time. And if this is going to work, if these disciples are going to carry this movement forward, then we have to get beyond the simplest of things, i.e., our pride. And so Jesus decides it's time, because pride has the power to derail this whole thing, he decides to do what he has to do. He decides to create a teachable moment, and he uses a child of all things as an object lesson. So again, uh, chapter, uh, verse 47, it says, so he brought a little child to his side, and then he says this, verse 48, powerful words for us today. Then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is least among you is the greatest. You might be reading this scripture this morning. You might be saying, okay, so he brought over a kid and he said, hey, be nice to the kids. If you can do that, then you can hang out with Jesus, right? But it's when you look at it, when you put yourself into this first century world that Jesus was in, you don't understand. This is such a radical statement. In Jesus' day, this caught people's attention. They had to have seen this and they said, say, what? Like, what, what's Jesus up to here? What's he doing with this kid? When we begin to understand the culture, we begin to see things looked a little different in the first century. Our culture, much like the culture of first century, was derived, value was derived from utility. What I mean by that is the way that we value people in society, and nod your head if you agree with this, is that we typically value people for one, who they are. And not like, oh, they're a nice person, but I'm thinking things more like last name, right? Social status, right? Not only do we find our value in who they are, people find their value in who they are, but they also find it in what they've done. And in first century life, what you begin to discover is if we've got these two categories, right? People who are valued based on what they can contribute to society, based on who they are, who their family tree is, what their last name is, but also what they've done. Here's the thing. A baby, a little baby, doesn't have either one of those things. They don't fit into those categories. And we might think, okay, well, that begins to make sense. But you have to look at the way that kids were understood and valued in the first century to really grasp this. Isn't it interesting? Children, when they were born, weren't typically considered an actual person until they were 40 days old, right? We have, like, gender reveal parties, and we put the vo videos on Facebook, and we do all this stuff before the kid's even born. We have ultrasounds, right? Families, first century, Jewish families wouldn't select a name for their child until it was 40 days old. They wouldn't even begin to think about it. Because the viability of this kid is even going to make it, is going to live, is questionable. I was doing some research this week and I came across a letter from a deployed Roman soldier who was telling his wife, if it's a boy, keep it, right? If it's a girl, Literally, it says, basically, throw it on the trash heap. That's the world that Jesus is walking into. Kids had no social value, right? What could they possibly provide? When we think about kids, they are in this category, none of the above.
And what Jesus is doing here is beginning to turn the world upside down, right? And today, in day, today's day and age, it's not like that. It's not nearly that severe. It's not that intense. But we still have this attitude towards children. It shows up every once in a while, right? Let's be honest. Kids can be challenging. Kids can be tough. Don't believe me? You say, oh, I would never say that about kids. I love kids, right? What goes through your mind and your heart when you're getting on an airplane and you realize that you've got the seat next to the infant, right? Does anything ever pop into your mind there? Kids are not easy, right? They don't sit still. I mean, you want, case in point, just come to my house sometime, right? Kids can't stay quiet all the time. They can't make, they can't help but make messes. They get in the way. And yet Jesus has this radical command for us to welcome them. In fact, Jesus says, unless you can welcome them, then I don't have a place, right? You can't be in relationship with me unless you get over yourself and welcome this child, then it's never going to happen. Because you see, the world believes it's who we are and what we've done that brings us value. And the disciples have totally bought in, but Jesus wants to turn that upside down. He wants us to understand that the value doesn't come from who we are, it's whose we are. Amen? It's not about what we've done, it's about what he's done. Amen? It's about those things. And this whole system in Jesus' mind doesn't even exist anymore. You go to Jesus' baptism, Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized by John, and God shows up again, the Holy Spirit descends, right? And he says, this is my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy. What has Jesus done ministry-wise at that point? Nothing. He's done nothing, and yet God loves him anyway. God's heart for you and I is loving us just as we are. It's why in Luke 19, he says his mission is to seek and save the lost. It's why God is the father on the porch looking for the prodigal son. And the good news for all of us is that there's always hope. Not just the kids, but Jesus broadens it. We're not just to welcome kids, and we're surely going to do that this week at VBS. But it's for all of us. For all of us that struggle with those first two categories. And yet there are these times when pride gets in the way. And if we're not careful, even as well-meaning Christians, we can obliterate Jesus' command to welcome these children. A few years ago, my wife and I were living in California. I was doing an internship out there to kind of wrap up my seminary stuff. And we thought, you know what? We're a bunch of Iowans. We're living in California. We don't even have to buy a plane ticket to go on vacation. So we decided for summer vacation, we're going to do a road trip around California. So we started in L.A., we're going to drive up San Francisco, and we were going to end up in Yosemite, and we were having a great time. We drove up the Pacific Coast Highways, beautiful, beautiful. Nothing uh, against Iowa, but it was fantastic to watch the sunset over the ocean. And we got to our first night's stay in, in the town of Monterey, California, and we'd been on the road all day. It was my wife and I. We had another family traveling with us, and we had two kids at the time. Right? We were so excited just to get out of the car. We were so excited just to go and enjoy a meal. And you're right there on the ocean. I mean, you've got to eat the seafood, right? And so we're driving around, and we find this beautiful restaurant overlooking the ocean. They had a table right up front, and we go and sit down, and we were beyond excited. And I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of looking around. I've got my wife. I've got some good friends that are with us, right? I've got my two adorable children sitting here at this table and I'm just sitting there, I just kind of did one of these, like, ah. 
It just felt so good to be there. That is until this waitress came over to us from a section, maybe just a few tables down, and she just looked at me, and honestly, she just scared me. She said, you have got to get those children to calm down. And my wife and I, we looked at each other, our reaction, we almost bust out laughing. We're like, do you know what it was like in our minivan all day? Like, these kids are angels right now, right? And so I just rolled it off. I thought to myself, as this woman was walking away, like, this woman clearly does not have kids at home, right? I mean, she is disconnected from reality, right? My kids were fantastic considering they were one and three years old, and they were sitting there quietly coloring and playing. I mean, they were squawking a little bit, but, I mean, believe me, it was nothing and so we're kind of sitting there, we're enjoying our drinks, munching on our appetizers, and I see this woman come back. This time she's got the manager with her. And I'm like, wait a minute. He comes over and he says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to keep your kids quiet. Can I bring you a bowl of ice cream? Can you bring? And I was like, you know what, you could bring the whole ice cream truck. I'm pretty sure my kids are not going to behave any better than they are right now. With God as my witness, they were unbelievable. But there was something about this environment. I don't know if it was a customer at another table that just had had a rough day or what. But I'm sitting there, and I'm in this restaurant, and I'm having the time of my life. And the manager says, unless you can get your kids to quiet down any more, then you guys need to leave. And so we scarfed down our food that we'd just gotten. And of course, it was the world's most expensive. You're paying for the view or whatever, but... Paid, paid the bill, walked out of there, and I cannot tell you, have you ever had an experience in your life where you don't just remember what happened, but you remember the very way that it felt when those things happened to you? I will never forget that moment that we got, <laughs> the Hermanson family got kicked out of a restaurant for doing nothing. And the hardest part of all, I think, looking back on it, was explaining to my three-year-old why the people in that restaurant didn't want us around. And in that moment, I began to think, you know, now I understand why Jesus said what he said. To welcome the kids, to welcome the people that don't have it all figured out, because when we get down to it, all of us struggle with this pride. All of us have this mess that's with inside of us. It's part of our story. But that's what it means to be human. And it got me thinking, and I, I thought as that day, as even the next day as we get up and drive, to drive away, I just thought, when I'm a part of a church, I don't want it ever to feel like that. And so it got me asking the question, and I think it's a question for all of us today to wrestle with, what kind of church are we going to be? Whether it's for the kids, whether it's for the people who don't have a place to live, whether it's the people that have made more mistakes than they can ever count. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of people who follow Jesus' example, who take everything that's given to them? Philippians chapter 2, Jesus says about Jesus that we should have his attitude. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to, right? But he gave up everything to welcome us into his family. Again, I'd ask you, what kind of church are we going to be? What's it going to take for us to be the kind of people who can invite people in? 
I want to close today with a video that I came across this week as well, and I was thinking about the, how much of our church is new. When I started Hope Des Moines three years ago, I'm guessing over half the people in this room were not a part of this congregation. God's been blessing it, right? How does that happen? It happens because people invite people, but not just into this church building. They invite people into their lives. And I'm guessing you've got someone in your mind, you've got someone in your life, maybe there's someone that God's been putting on your heart, and maybe it's time to invite them. Because if we're not careful, though, our pride can get in the way. And as you watch this clip, be thinking about who are the people that I'm called to invite, not just to church, not just to some church service, but to the party that Jesus is throwing for us as a community. So as you take a look at this, think about that and ask yourself this question, what kind of church do we want to be? Let's take a look. Would you stand and join me as we pray? Jesus, you said in your word, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me almost always also welcomes my father who sent me. God, you said, whoever is the least among you is the greatest. And God, we claim that today. We believe that promise to be true, Lord, that the reality of your kingdom couldn't be more opposite of what we experience today. God, would you take the pride that we have, the hesitancy, the fear, whatever it is, our self-focus that seems to get in the way of us being the people you've called us to be, and God, would you crucify that within us today? God, would you allow us to be the church that you've called us to be, to welcome the strangers, those feeling unloved, the broken, the hurting, the messy, the kids. And God, may you glorify yourself in us and through us so that people can make no mistake about it. God, it's not us who loves them, but it's you. It's you. God, as we pray for VBS this week, as we welcome kids into our building, God, may it be a joyful celebration, and may we have stories to tell when we come back together next week. God, thank you for all you've done, and we ask that you continue to walk with us. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. If you need prayer this week, there'll be prayer partners up here. Have a great week. Go be the church.